welcome to Stories Worth Telling. I'm Rana Dietrich. There are stories worth telling, amazing and beautiful stories that deserve to be told. And here's why. If we would but hear them, remember them, resurrect them, we would find ourselves strangely stronger, braver, wiser, more tender, more and more ourselves. So that's what I do. I tell those stories, ones worth telling, ones that deserve to be told. Some of them you've probably heard before, maybe just not quite like this. Others you've probably never heard, and all of them will sound so profoundly familiar that you'll wonder if truly the story I'm telling is yours or at least the one you believe, deep in your bones, is the one you're meant to live. May it be so. Today's story worth telling is about Rebecca. Her story spans at least three chapters in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Old Testament. Lots is told of her, And this in and of itself is actually rare in the stories of women in scripture. Some of the stories that I've told even on this podcast come from like one mention, one sentence, hardly anything spoken of them. Not Rebecca. Lots of text, lots of content that tells her story. She longs to be, deserves to be remembered and noticed. And in truth, she will not be ignored. That was just as true then as her story played out as it is now. So the first thing I want you to know about her story is that it is like an epic love story. It's the stuff of movies, really, and romantic novels, at least the beginning part. Abraham, who is the patriarch of the Israelite people, needs to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so he sends his servant off to find one. He instructs him to travel beyond the local lands to return to their homeland, believing that it's only there that he'll be able to find a woman worthy of his son. He then tells the servant that God has already sent an angel out ahead of him, already finding the woman that the servant is going to discover and that she will surely return with him. So... The servant sets out. He's loaded down with all kinds of expensive gifts, and he travels to the town where Abraham's brother had settled. Now, just outside the city, he stops at a well, and he prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, this is my request. I will ask of the woman at the well, please give me a drink from your jug. If she says, yes, have a drink, and I will water your camels too, Let her be the one you have selected as Isaac's wife. Then the story tells us that even before he had finished praying, he saw a young woman named Rebecca coming out with her water jug on her shoulder. We are told that Rebecca was very beautiful and old enough to be married. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came back up again. Running over to her, the servant said, Please give me a drink of water from your jug. Yes, my lord, she answered, have a drink. And she quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder to give him one. When she'd given him a drink, she then said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've had enough to drink. 
So she quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to get water for all of his camels. Now, the servant watched her in total silence for some reason, wondering whether or not she was the one and almost unable to believe that his prayer had been answered so decisively. But as soon as he was convinced, and as soon as the camels had finished drinking, he took out a gold ring for her nose and two large gold bracelets for her wrists. Up next, Rebecca ran back to her family to tell them what had happened. And shortly after she got there and had been speaking and carrying on, the servant arrived and made his request, his formal request, on behalf of Abraham, and then presented Rebecca with silver and gold jewelry and clothing. Interestingly, her family asked her if she was willing to go with the man to Isaac, and she agreed. That's actually not a very normal thing that the family would have asked. Instead, they would have just made the covenant, exchanged the dowries, um, and Rebecca would have had no choice in the matter. So this even tells us something about her. She does say that she's willing to go. Uh, And so the next morning, Rebecca and her servants mount camels and follow the servant back to his master's home. So one evening, Isaac is out walking in the fields and he looks up and he sees camels approaching. At the very same time, Rebecca looks up and sees Isaac. She then quickly dismounts from her camel and she asks the servant, who is that man walking through the fields to meet us? He tells her that it is his master, Isaac. So Rebecca covers her face with her veil as the servant is telling Isaac everything that had happened. And soon after, Rebecca became Isaac's wife. So before I go any further, let's just acknowledge how fabulous this story is so far. Can you imagine it? You're a single woman going about your day only to find that someone has been in search of you, has prayed for you, has even stated exactly what needs to be said in order to confirm that you are the one, which you then say, and then you're adorned with expensive jewelry and clothes. Wow. Uh, I won't speak for you, but um, that's not quite the way my story has gone, and I think it speaks a bit to what we would want to have be true, doesn't it? Now, what would happen if you actually believed that somewhere, someone was actually praying for you to show up, to make yourself known, to speak? If you really believed that, what might shift for you? How might you see and understand and honor yourself differently? It seems to me that that is worth considering. And here's the thing. Miracles occur all the time when women are just themselves. When we walk through the warp and woof of our days, when we show up, when we let ourselves be seen, and most definitely when we speak, just like Rebecca. May it be so. Okay, back to her story and what happens next, because that was hardly the end of it. Um, her tale is not all romance and miracles. Just a while later, we learn that she was unable to get pregnant, which is like the worst fate to befall a woman of that time. So Isaac prays to his God on her behalf. Now note, this is the second time that someone in the text has prayed on behalf of Rebecca. 
that feels significant in and of itself. And sure enough, just like before, God answered the prayer, this time Isaac's, and Rebecca became pregnant with twins. Now, as the story goes, we're told that the two children struggled with each other even while they were in her womb. So she asked Isaac's God about this, saying, why is this happening to me? And God told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Rebecca gave birth to two boys. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. As the boys grew, Esau became a skillful hunter and an outdoorsman. Jacob was his opposite with a quiet temperament who preferred to stay at home. Somehow over time, the mother and father chose their favorite. I don't think this was intentional, but it it definitely happened in the course of the story. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home, and Rebecca loved Jacob. Now one day, Esau came home from hunting, and he smelled the stew that Jacob was cooking. I'm starved, he said. Give me some of that red stew. Now, Jacob agreed, but with one condition. I'll give you the stew if you give me your birthright. And without thinking, Esau agreed. A decision that would later come to haunt him. Isaac, Rebekah's husband, and Esau, and Jacob's father, well, that didn't make very much sense, sorry, Rebecca's husband, Isaac, the father of Esau and Jacob, got older and older. And one day he called for his eldest son, Esau, and said, I don't know when I might die. Go out into the open country and hunt wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish and bring it here for me to eat. Then I will give you your blessing, my firstborn son. Now remember what Rebecca had heard when she was in such misery during her pregnancy, how God had said to her, the older son will serve the younger one, right? So Rebecca's overheard the conversation that's taken place between Esau and her husband, Isaac, and she decides to take matters into her own hands. She has Jacob prepare his father's favorite stew while Esau's out hunting. Then she covers Jacob with the skin of young goats so that Isaac would be none the wiser. She has Jacob take the food into his father, and one thing leads to another, and Isaac blesses Jacob, giving him all the privileges of the firstborn son. Then, as you might imagine, Esau comes back. And when Jacob and Rebekah's plot is uncovered, Esau weeps when he hears his father tell him that he can't give him the blessing that he actually deserves. And the text tells us that from that point on, Esau hated Jacob. At one point, Rebecca actually hears Esau threaten to kill Jacob, and so she goes to her favorite son and she tells him to flee to her brother's home, the place from which she had come so many years earlier, so that he could remain safe. And she said to him, Stay there until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you have done to him, I will send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day? 
Now, there is a bit more of Rebecca's story that I'm not going to tell you today, but um, it is also worth telling. Uh, and you could find it if you wanted to look through Genesis 24 through 27, just to hear the rest of those details. But that's the bulk of it. Those are the primary uh, texts and aspects of the story that we're given. So a beautiful beginning, right? This epic love story, difficult middle with the pregnancy and the wrestling in the womb, and then a relatively painful end with the manipulative acts of Rebecca and the older son being tricked out of his blessing. It's really not quite the way we want it to go. And yet within is a woman who, as I said earlier, will not be ignored then or now, and who I believe has much to offer us today. Before I go into the themes of this story, I want to insert a little thought here. It is exactly because Rebecca's story is imperfect that I love it, and the stories of so many of these women of whom I write and speak. This is exactly what makes them human, makes them real, makes them relevant to us yet today, right? We are human, we are real, and to know of, learn from, and be accompanied by other women who are like us and who have so much to offer, who can resist? Okay, here are the themes in Rebecca's story. There are so many of them, but I've chosen three for today. The three things that I think she would want you to know and hear directly from her. Number one, trust your heart. Number two, take crazy risks. And number three, let go of the outcome. At the very beginning of Rebecca's story, though she is the one prayed for and pursued by Abraham's servant on behalf of his son, she trusts. And it is from this place, because of this way of being, that she offers him the water in the first place and then his camels. It's from this place, because of this way of being, that she runs back to her family to tell them what has happened to her. And it's from this place, because of this way of being, this trust, because she trusts her own heart, that she's willing to leave her family, leave everything she knows, and travel far toward a man she does not know, and a promise that will change her life. I love this about her, and I wonder about it for me. I have found it difficult to trust my heart over the years, frankly, because I have done so before and I've been hurt. And when that happens enough times, um, maybe it's only me, but I think we begin to become a bit cynical or at least less emotional, more objective. We follow our heads instead of our heart. But here's what I know. That actually hasn't served me. Though it's true, I might be able to make a smart decision using my intellect and my reasoning, and though sometimes that is exactly the right thing to do, it's what my heart longs for, what my heart needs, what my heart sees and feels and knows that guides me in the best of all possible ways. My heart can be trusted. This is a part of us as women that I think has been lost or at least shut down in a world that has harmed us. All of us have lived with our heart on our sleeve. We've walked into relationships, jobs, conversations, situations in which we have let our heart be our guide and we've been hurt. But 
Hurt does not mean wrong. Hurt does not mean never risk again. Hurt means that our heart led the way as it should. And when we've been hurt and go on and persevere and get back up and take one more step and face one more day, it reminds us that our heart can be trusted because look, it still beats, it still feels, it still leads, and it still loves no matter what. Rebecca reminds and reminds and reminds. Trust your heart. Trust your heart. Trust your heart. Hers did not lead her astray. Yours will not either. All right, the second theme is actually the direct consequence of the first one. So the first theme was trust your heart. The second one is take crazy risks. How can we possibly do this if we don't trust our hearts? I don't think we can. So number one is pretty important. It is when you trust your heart that you can take crazy risks, not the other way around. And this is exactly what we see in Rebecca's story, saying yes to Isaac, trusting Isaac's God and Isaac's prayer on her behalf when she was heartbroken in infertility. And though manipulative to be sure, when her heart favored Jacob and she would do any and everything in her power to see him blessed. Now I'll get to the problems in this in just a minute, I promise. But in all of these scenes, and so many more of which we've never been told, she took crazy risks because she couldn't do anything else, and certainly anything less. She lived a bold and colorful and beautiful life because she took crazy risks. And it is to that that she calls both me and you. We need to be reminded of this. We need the strong and beautiful voice of other women cheering us on from the sidelines. We need them to reflect back to us what it is that they see, strong hearts that can be trusted. And we need them to call us out, call us forward, compel us into our best selves, taking crazy risks. Now, I don't mean crazy like dangerous, foolish, and irresponsible. And I'm guessing you know this. I mean crazy like against the grain of culture, completely aligned with your desires, determined and fixed and certain, impossible to be talked out of them, no matter the consequences. What crazy risks might you be able to take if you considered Rebecca as mentor and muse? What generosity might you surprisingly offer? What might you say yes to? What adventure might you pursue? What relationship might you enter into with abandon? Or what relationship might you leave with courage? What art might you create? What writing might you do? What words might you speak? What actions might you take? You can easily find people to tell you that all of these things are too crazy, but you can just as easily hear Rebecca's voice whispering on the warmest of winds. Listen, your choices, your desires, your risks are far from crazy. They are sane and wise and beautiful. Trust your heart, trust your heart, trust your heart, and leap. I've got you. 
The third theme, not surprisingly, hinges on the first two. So by way of quick review, number one, trust your heart. Number two, take crazy risks. And number three, let go of the outcome. This was the part that Rebecca didn't do all that well. And as I said above, that's one of the many reasons in which I love her story. Why I find it is one that is so worth telling. It was her unwillingness to let things play out as they should or would, and instead messing with reality that got her son into trouble. I'll actually tell you more of that story one of these days when I talk about Rachel, Rebecca's daughter-in-law. Too much of the time when stories like these have been told, and particularly those of women in scripture, they are used as examples of how not to be. In effect, the message we internalize sounds something like this. See, this is what happens when you trust your own heart, when you listen to your own wisdom, when you take matters into your own hands, when you take crazy risks. Don't do it. Over time, those stories or the way of telling those stories and the messages within them wreak havoc, and we come to believe them. We tell ourselves before we even begin that we dare not listen to our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own perspective on what is happening around us, because surely it will only make a mess of things. Surely we don't understand the bigger picture. Surely, just like Rebecca, we'll mess things up which, of course, is why I tell these stories a different way. Rather than seeing Rebecca as an object lesson to make a point about how a woman should not behave, what if we were to see her as the most wise of mentors, a beautiful crone who comes alongside and speaks from her own experience? What if we didn't demand that she be perfect, which we are not capable of either, and instead let her speak to us from her own successes and failures, joys and heartbreaks, dignity and depravity. The ancient sacred stories of women that I love are just as real as I am. And believe me, I am real. I've failed. I've known heartbreak. I've made bad decisions. And I've tried over and over again to manipulate the outcome of things. I have been highly skilled at codependent behavior that somehow believes that if I can just fix things for you, then everything will be better. And in all of these, at my best, I take a deep breath, slow myself down, and listen yet again for Rebecca's voice. Shh, Rana, I know. Your heart is good. You do want the best for others. You do have wisdom to offer and impart. And there are times in which you are called to let others live with their own choices, their own consequences, their own crazy risks. There are times that invite you to rest, to sit back, to let things play out. There are times in which you need to pull in, not react or respond and shore up your strength, so that you can be there for yourself and others when disappointment and hurt inevitably come. And more than all else, look at my story and be reminded of what is most true, that because your heart can be trusted, you can trust, period. Let go. Just be. Wait. Know that the outcome will make itself known, that you are not responsible for it, that you can hold on to your heart, listen to its beating, and breathe deep 
Julian of Norwich, a woman who came centuries and centuries after me, once said, what I want you to hear, what I didn't listen to, and what I now know. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Yes, learn from me, listen to me, let go of the outcome, and just be here now. I am with you. Here's something I want to make sure you understand, that what Rebecca says to me, what I hear her speak, she says and speaks to you as well. You can trust your heart. You can take crazy risks and you can let go of the outcome. This is the way to live boldly, passionately, beautifully, and so very alive, just like Rebecca. Now, hear her heart yet again on your behalf. Trust your heart. It will merit you blessing untold. Take risks that seem crazy. They're the most direct route to the life that is uniquely and beautifully yours to live. And when tempted to take matters into your own hands, don't. Instead, let go, let go, let go. I promise, all will be well. Oh, And one more promise, no matter how hard these things might seem at times, you are not alone. I am always with you, as are the generations of women who preceded me and followed, the lineage from which you descend. You are encircled, supported, and seen, cheered on, lifted up, and loved. So trust, love, risk, and let go. Indeed, all will be well my daughter, my lineage, my kin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with another story worth telling.